welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, October 4th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. What good is the wood of a grapevine if the vine doesn't produce any grapes? Its only usefulness is fuel for the fire. In the same way, the faithlessness and fruitlessness of Judah will lead to her destruction by fire at the hands of the Babylonians. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Kilgo. Pastor Kilgo serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Pastor Kilgo, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's good to be back. Pastor Kilgo, let's talk a little context. We're in Ezekiel 15. What should we know about the prophet, his ministry, what he said so far, and what he will be saying that might help us with chapter 15 today? Well, so maybe the biggest thing is that chapter 14, especially the latter part of chapter 14, is almost a, a direct lead in. There's there's questions on whether or not these prophecies were actually given back to back, but there is a similarity in kind of the thrust of them. In particular, the thrust in, and this has kind of been a general theme of Jeremiah, or of, excuse me, of Ezekiel, that that Israel is not repentant, right? So, so the Lord has been calling Israel to repentance and they just don't want to, right? And so now he starts getting fairly, fairly harsh. It starts in 14, especially, but 15 really picks this up. And then 16 that's going to come after is kind of where this really just explodes. Um, and so that, that's one of the, the big things. Also, we're, we're in the midst of the the Babylonian captivity, like actually occurring, right? So I don't remember the exact dating of these, but you've got you've got kind of a ten year ish period between the the first and the second waves of this, and so this is occurring kind of in the midst of all of that. So there's kind of a real time execution of God's judgment going on in all of this. One of the themes that you said for Ezekiel that we've heard over and over again is that Israel is not repentant. And we, we say that so often, not only for the study of Ezekiel, but really for the study of scriptures, you know, we talk about repentance and perhaps it'll be good to just take a step back for a moment and, and talk about what is repentance, Pastor Kelgo. Yeah. So, so repentance is one of these things we get, I think maybe a little bit confused on this because in English, it sounds like an active thing for us. And so this is maybe the first, uh, the first part to understand about repentance is it is just like salvation, redemption, sanctification. All these things are God's gracious work in us. So is repentance. And one of the chief places to see that is in Luke. I believe it's chapter 14. I can always confuse which chapter it is, but it's the parable of the, the lost sheep and the lost coin. And Jesus summarizes or interprets the parables after each one saying, in the same way, all of heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. And so we learn that the picture there of repentance is being found by Jesus. Right? That's that's kind of the big thing. And you also see this Psalm, I think it's 83, has this. It, 
it gets translated as restore, but it's actually repent. Uh, repent us to yourself, O Lord, and pray it three times through there. You have this in also in Lamentations 5, um, this prayer to restore us to yourself, O Lord, but it, it is this word repent. And so this is the thing we want to understand that we we pray for repentance and we work towards repentance, but we know all the while it is God's work in us. And this is one of the things that'll come up with Ezekiel later on, where the Lord says that I will take from them a heart of stone and give to them a heart of flesh. This is kind of one of the pictures of repentance. And what's happening with Israel is that there's no no fruit being born. There's no signs of repentance at all. We can harden our hearts to the Lord's work of repentance. And that's what he urges us against in texts such as this. So that's the first part of repentance is that it's God's work. Okay, so with with that, repentance being God's work in us, he uses his word to accomplish it, to give us the heart of flesh, to take out that heart of stone. Today's text, particularly with this image of Israel as a useless vine, is going to bring to bear the the image of that bearing fruit, which I think you, you mentioned. And I, I recall even the preaching of John the Baptist, who talks about bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So how does the fact of repentance being a work of God, he accomplishes in us, how does that go, or how does that work with the good works then that he gives us to do? Yeah, so this this is one of these interesting things. I We've been talking about this in a few of our Bible studies recently. Ephesians 2 has this passage that we all know the beginning part of, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, apart from works so that no one may boast. This is God's doing. It is the gift of God. And we kind of stop there. Um, and we really need to keep reading and go even just to the very next verse, because the very next verse continues, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we would walk in them. And so the Lord prepares these good works for us to walk in. He's prepared them in our vocations, according to the 10 commandments. This is, you know, table of duties sort of stuff out of the small catechism. And so what our life of repentance ends up looking like is it looks like living faithfully within our vocations um, and and not only of you know mother father husband or wife child worker whatever but you we remember the very first two vocations that the, that Luther gives us there and that is pastors and hearers right this is the the chief vocation out of which all the others are are flowing in our our attempt to live them as best as we can so for Israel here and for us, uh, as well, that our chief work of repentance is going to be continuing to come and hear the Lord's word, not hardening our heart to it, letting that word actually dwell in us richly, letting our minds be conformed to every one of those words, and letting them, in, in essence, have their way with us, right? And, th- and this is, again, this is what Israel's not doing, and this is why the, the condemnation ends up coming on them. So let's take a look and see how Ezekiel preaches this. We're in chapter 15 this morning, beginning at the first verse. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it, and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. 
how much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred can it ever be used for anything therefore thus says the lord god like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest which i have given to the fire for fuel so have i given up the inhabitants of jerusalem and i will set my face against them though they escape from the fire the fire shall yet consume them and you will know that i am the lord when i set my face against them and i will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly declares the lord god that is our text for today that's ezekiel 15 verses 1 to 8. so pastor kilgo there's plenty of theology that we get to talk about with this text but let's make sure that we understand the picture that ezekiel's painting and the reason he paints this picture he talks about the wood from a vine branch and its usefulness. What What's the picture that Ezekiel is giving us here and what's the comparison that he's making? Yeah, so one of the things that's helpful in this is he says, what becomes of the wood of the grapevine out of all the trees, right? There's this comparison. You've got all these other trees that you can use wood out of, and then you've got the wood of the grapevine. And what what's the difference? Well, grapevine wood, if you've ever been around a vineyard or whatever, is not very strong. You can't build a house out of it. You can try, but it's not going to go very well. It's it's not going to be good, as he says, for you know even fashioning a peg out of to put in the wall and hanging like a, a cup off of. And so the the idea is that the usefulness of the grapevine is found expressly in its bearing fruit. And so if the grapevine's not bearing fruit, it actually has no usefulness except to be burned, right? That that that's it, and in is from a kind of earthly perspective that might be fine for us you know if it's a cold winter or whatever and we want to have a fire keep ourselves warm but we understand that in this picture as ezekiel goes on that this is not a picture of just keeping yourself warm this is a picture of judgment and we see this especially this this imagery of the last judgment of the fire consuming the the unbelievers and whatnot so this is this is what he's talking about here that the one one of the commentators makes this point that the the wood of the grapevine is soft and flexible, useless for anything except perhaps to make a fire. And and even there, like this is not the ideal wood for a fire either, because it is soft. It's 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 somewhat hollow on the inside, and so it even though it's going to burn, it's not going to burn for a long time. You want denser wood if you're going to make a, a good fire that's going to last a while. So even there, it's not it's not great for a, for a fire even. And so this just kind of drives back, what is the chief usefulness of the vine? It is for it to bear fruit. In this case, for a, a grapevine, for it to give you grapes. And this is something that the Lord brings up elsewhere. You know, when I looked to my vineyard, why did it yield wild grapes why is it yielding all what i don't want it to yield even if it's yielding fruit it's yielding bad fruit right so even there that the fruit that it bears has to be the proper type of fruit so the the picture of the vine here is bringing to mind these other images from scripture i think you were referencing there the what's sometimes called the song of the vineyard in isaiah chapter 5 and i, I think that that's a, a helpful image to bring to mind for this text because it, it does give you what's behind this text you know that that when ezekiel talks about a vine a vineyard he's bringing to bear all that the scriptures say about what the lord did for his people israel in planting them as their own nation and then you know in particular in isaiah 5 the emphasis there at the start of that song is how the lord did everything necessary 
for his people to bear the right kind of grapes, to bear those good grapes that he was looking for instead of the wild grapes that they gave, which fits in very nicely with what you were saying earlier about Ephesians 2.10, that the good works that we have are those that God has prepared for us to do. It's going to tie in nicely with what we're going to read in the next chapter in Ezekiel chapter 16, where although the image is one of marriage there, there, you still have this emphasis on how God gave his bride Israel absolutely everything. And so that same background is is in play here in, in Ezekiel 15, that God has given everything for the sake of bearing fruit, but there isn't any fruit. And that's why there's this talk of, of fire, because there's no other use for, for the wood of a grapevine if it's not going to bear fruit than maybe to burn it. Right. And and I, I think this is such an important point to just kind of hammer home with something like this, that you you have the Lord is the one planting, right? This this is this imagery that comes up all over the place in the scriptures, that God is the one doing the work to plant, to cause the growth, these sorts of things. You know, you get that language with Paul and Apollos. Um, I, I watered, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth, right? You've got the imagery of the son of man as the sower in the field, right? You've got the Isaiah imagery of planting a vineyard, right? All these things where the Lord is kind of always doing this stuff. One of the very interesting, and and maybe the hearers already have this in their mind, one of the very interesting connections with this is John 15, where Jesus brings this up and he actually kind of pulls in all of this, right? Where he says, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser, right? And so, I think we forget sometimes what vine dressers do. They they come along and they they prune, they they shear. Luther, when he's commenting on this, makes this point where he, the vine dresser would come along and he'd pour manure all around the the base of it in order to fertilize it. And even though that's kind of a, a messy job and it it stinks, uh, it it's good for the vine, right? And this is Luther brings us up that this is what the Lord does to us with suffering that he brings suffering and persecution into the life of the church, not in order to like torture the church, but in order to cause the church to bear good fruit. That's actually the, the fertilizer of, of good fruits in this world is persecution and suffering from the world. Um, Just real quickly, because I, I think that you know, bringing John 15, this is going to be a good place for us to look to see how Jesus takes this image and applies it. But this matter of the Father being the vine dresser in the first verse of John 15, I think is, is a reminder again of some of the background of Ezekiel 15. Compared to some of other the other oracles that Ezekiel preaches, John or Ezekiel 15 is, is rather short, as, as we discovered. And yet there's a lot of stuff in the background. And one of these things is how God has seen the fruitlessness of his people, and he's worked towards remedying that. It's not like he saw that he planted them, there was no fruit, and he cut them down. But there's been one thing after another that the Lord has done in an effort to prune, to fertilize, to give that, give those good works to his people so that they would bear that fruit. And that persistence, that patience for so long now has reached its end. And that's where we are at the fire. So I think that's, again, a helpful reminder of some of the background of this image, that it's not like the Lord just up and decided, oh, you're done. He's been quite patient and forbearing with them, as we've seen from other places in Ezekiel and throughout the prophets. And now that he's talking about the fire, that means the judgment is is coming now. So, I mean, there's a, again, that's the backstory of this image, the patience of God. But now here comes the fire of judgment. 
Right. And you, and you get this reminder kind of all over the place. One that I was recently thinking about is when St. Peter takes up the ark in the flood, he specifically references when the patience of God waited in the days of Noah, right? That, you know, God's looking down and he sees that every intention of the thoughts of the heart are only evil continuously. And you're like, well, why doesn't he just like blot everybody out then? He, he waits and gives this time to uh, allow people to to repent, which they don't, sadly. And we, we know the rest of that narrative. But that the Lord is always patient with us. The fact that any of us are still sitting here at all is an indication of the Lord's patience to us, right? But that also, this is one of the big descriptors, like in the Psalms, that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. So I think what happens is we we run up on stuff like this, it, in, like in Ezekiel, and we're like, whoa, I mean, this kind of seems like God's overreacting a bit here. And there, there's two reasons that I think we do that. One, we don't realize the seriousness of the sin, which if, if you're if you're thinking that, just wait for chapter 16 and you'll see how seriously God takes all this stuff. But then the other is that we forget the the background, like you said, the, the context leading up to this, how regularly Israel has not heeded the call to repent. Um, and it's kind of like parenting, right? You keep giving your kid another chance, another chance, another chance. And finally, you're like, okay, you know, no more TV, no more books, no extracurricular activities. You know, you're going to sit at your desk. You're going to do math all day long. You're going to, you know, do your English all day long. And then you're going to go to bed. Maybe I'll feed you, right? It, it, this is kind of, you get to this point where you're like, what do I have to do to get this through your head? And you're, and that's the point though, is that the Lord does this stuff, not out of, not out of some sense of vengefulness, right? But out of a sense of mercy, out of a sense of, of love in order to try and kind of last ditch effort, turn his people back toward himself. And I, I want to come back to John 15, but just since, since you brought that up, I do think that that connects very well to that formula that we've heard the Lord speak over and over again in Ezekiel. And he says it again here. It's in verse seven of this text that you will know that I am the Lord. Even this matter of, of the fire that's going to fall upon Jerusalem when the Babylonians come and destroy it, even that is intended that the people would know that he is the Lord. And I think this is where that context of Ezekiel being in exile already, preaching to the exiles there who are looking for, you know, who are being told this is what's going to happen. What's the Lord going to do through that? Not just the judgment, that's certainly a part of it, but he's also going to to teach those people there in exile, I'm the Lord. There's going to be a, a call to repentance and a call to faith in this act of judgment when the people in exile see it actually happen in a few years from when Ezekiel preaches this. Right, right. And we and we still have this, th this mindset in the church, right? So it doesn't get used hardly at all, but you can ask your pastor to see this, ask him to pull out his uh, agenda and take a look at the the right of excommunication. And what's interesting is the language that's there is entirely, it's sorrowful. It, it's not at all joyful. This is not a happy thing that the church does. But built into that language is also this desire. We want this person to repent of their sin and come back into fellowship with the church, right? And what's what's being driven at there, and and this is maybe the, the big point that we miss, is that there are our refusal to hear God's word and to um, 
and again, let that word have its way with us and bring about our repentance to harden our heart to that is already spiritually to separate ourselves from, from God and his mercy. And what things like excommunication or in this case, God's judgment against Israel and the actual effect of that coming through the Babylonians, what that's intended to do is to show physically the reality that already exists spiritually, right? And, and I think we forget that, that this is something that's already happened. God is just showing what that, the, the fact that that reality does in fact exist. And the reason he's doing that is to try and take the blinders off of us so that we can see clearly our own sin and what we've done. And instead of continuing in our hardness of heart and our unbelief, say, you know, woe is me, Lord, have mercy, please forgive my sins. And what's great is that the Lord, who is, as we said, uh, steadfast and abounding in steadfast love and mercy and slow to anger, that he's always there. Like we had, I mentioned the, the, the parables in Luke, but the third one of those is the prodigal son. There's the father waiting for the son to come back in repentance. And he, the, the Lord always welcomes us back into fellowship with him. And that's where, I mean, like, was I think it's in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about dealing with that unrepentant sinner by handing him over to Satan in order to win him, ultimately. That's right. that's the goal of speaking the law in its sternest form all the way to the judgment that's being talked about here in Ezekiel. This is ultimately to win the sinner back because God can raise the dead. I mean, and that's that's the good news, and that's where maybe the, the image of the the vine being burned up does does break down at least toward you know God's ultimate purposes of knowing that He is the Lord? You know He He asks when when you've got both ends burned, the middle charred, is it useful for anything? Well, I mean the answer is, is no, it's not. At the same time, we know that when the Lord does through His Word work that repentance and faith, that He does make the dead sinner, the one who had separated himself from Christ. He makes that person alive and and brand new again. That's the the heart of stone and the heart of flesh talk. And again, that's the that's the purpose. The Lord even goes that far in bringing His judgment to call the sinner back. Right, and this this is actually the Ephesians two text again. It's just earlier on. You who were dead in your trespasses and sin, God made alive together through Christ Jesus. Right, that um, that this is our natural state is being dead in our trespasses and sin, being blind, not being able to see the truth, being God's enemy. And yet because God loves us with this, this love that is unfathomable to our minds, because we would never do this, right? To, to someone that we're like a mortal enemy of, we wouldn't do this. But, but the Lord desires that all would turn and come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. And so he, he does the unthinkable with this stuff. And, you know, we always jump right to the the crucifixion of Christ in, in, you know, God doing the unthinkable, but also doing the unthinkable is, for example, here in Ezekiel 15, this promise of, of major judgment upon a nation, actually sending them into exile through the Babylonians or, you know, elsewhere through the Assyrians or through the Egyptians, right? That this is the Lord doing what is unthinkable to us. But again, he's doing it out of love to bring about repentance. And what we see because we know the end of these stories, right? We we see that the Lord does preserve a remnant always through these things, but it's through those those very stern actions, whether it's an, an action of law and judgment or an action of gospel and redemption, that he's preserving his church 
through the midst of these things. Right. The theme of the remnant has been a very a key gospel theme for Ezekiel so far in his book. Even though it, it doesn't particularly come up in a, in a specific way here, it's certainly in the background and the places we've heard him preach it. And again, that's where, you know, that you will know that I'm the Lord. That's what the Lord wants. He wants his people to know who he is, to trust in him so that he would be their God that they would be his people. That's the Lord's desire, even when he's speaking words of judgment. And we're going to pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You are listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are talking Ezekiel chapter 15 this morning with Pastor Sean Kilgo. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, October 4th. We are studying Ezekiel chapter 15, verses 1 to 8 with Pastor Sean Kilgo. He's the pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Pastor Kilgo, prior to the break, we were talking about this matter of how God uses even his law out of love to draw us back to himself. You were mentioning to me over the break, that reminds you a lot of what he says in Hebrews 12 about God treating us as sons. What does the Lord say there that's helpful to this conversation? Yeah, so in, in Hebrews 12, he says this, uh, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And he continues in this in this vein. This is this is important for us to remember both in our lives and also when we're reading a text like this, that because the Lord loves us, because we he treats us as his own children, which we are, that he then disciplines us when, when needed, which is a lot more often than we like to admit. And in that disciplining, the point of Hebrews 12 there is, that disciplining is actually a sign to us of God's love and should be a comfort to us. Because if the Lord didn't care about us, then he would just let us, you know, stay in our sins and run headlong into the outer darkness and into eternal destruction. But he doesn't do that. He's always calling us back to himself by whatever means he has to use, right? And there is there is nothing too, too great or too extravagant for the Lord to use in order to bring us back to himself because quite literally eternity is at stake, right? So, so if it brings some temporal hardship on us, but it results in our eternal salvation, then oh well, right? God, God knows what is more important in this scheme. Now, all of that, I think, was an extended conversation on the first part of John 15, where the Father is called the vine dresser. He prunes, he does what is necessary to bring us back to himself. There's a lot more there in John 15. The, the primary image is that Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, and in him we bear fruit. How does that connect to Ezekiel 15? Yeah, so one of the things is the Lord is saying, you know, you are supposed to be this, this vine that I've planted. 
And what we see very often when Jesus comes along is he becomes the fulfillment of these things, what, what Israel was supposed to do or what Adam was supposed to do or whatever it might be. Jesus is the one who stands in that place and does it perfectly as it was supposed to be done. So he says, and he doesn't just say, I am the vine, but I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. So I'm, I'm the one that's been planted, the true vine that's been planted. And then we are then grafted into that vine by faith in order to bear fruit. But he gives this warning even there. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may, may bear more fruit, right? So even, you know, you read the first part, it's like, okay, well, as long as I'm bearing fruit, then I'm fine. He's going to leave me alone. It's like, no, 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 he's going to come and prune you. He's going to bring various things into your life. But the purpose is that you would bear more fruit, right? And so we can see Jesus, especially in John 15, being the fulfillment of what Israel is supposed to be. And there's there's this fascinating thing that just kind of came into my mind in, in considering this text that, you know, Ezekiel has this rhetorical little question in here. Is it useful for any purpose after it's been burned up or, or whatever? And you kind of have this same sort of thing confessed about Jesus. You know, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? And the, the answer in Ezekiel, right, is, is no, like there, there's nothing good that can come out of this burnt up uh, piece of wood. Um, but there is something good that, at least for us, right, but God can bring even out of something like that, something great and wonderful, even our own salvation, in the same way that he does bringing this out of this little, little town of Nazareth, right? And out of that town, Nazareth, he grows, he plants a new vineyard, essentially, in Christ and grows this beautiful vine that we're all attached to. So, I mean, that's, I think we really, really want to see that in, when we're reading Ezekiel to have John 15. And it's nice because they're the same chapter number, right? Ezekiel 15 and John 15. It's easy it, to it does, it does help. That's right. Yeah, to, that it's the same chapter number, and even similar in terms of the, where those are in the verses there in those chapters. It's that's great. One of the one of the things with, and I, I do want to come back to that thought about can anything good come out of Nazareth, and and what that means for for Christ and how he fulfills this and even you know turns this text on its head in a sense when we are grafted to him. But before we before we get there, I want to stay there in John fifteen for at least a little bit longer. And, and when you're talking about, you know, the, the branches that don't bear fruit, which seems rather unthinkable, you know, that, I mean, what's a, what's a branch doing on a grapevine not bearing fruit? It just seems it's unnatural, and, and yet it happens. And, and one of the ways that at least it happens in the application of it when we talk about the, the Christian life, one of the ways that I think our confessions talk about this that you brought up to me was the necessity of good works. So how mm -hmm. does the the necessity of good works in Ezekiel 15, John 15, in our confessions, how does that tie into this? Yeah, so th there's a couple places where this is just like super clear. So one is in the actual article on new, it's called the article on new obedience that we've kind of got two, two articles in Augsburg on good works. The first one is article six, new obedience. And we just say this, our churches teach that this faith is bound to bring forth good fruit. It is necessary to do good works commanded by God because of God's will. And I mean, it, it's, it's beautiful in its simplicity, right? And we go on to say, like, the, these good works don't merit justification or salvation, but that they are bound to faith. Faith necessarily produces good works. 
And so we'll use this term necessary. Now, this becomes a controversy. And so the listeners unaware in the, in the book of Concord, the last document in there, the formula of Concord takes up a lot of these controversies that arise within the kind of the first generation of Lutherans, and especially after Luther dies, and they start dealing with all of them. And one of them that comes up is the, the controversy concerning good works. And this is article four of the formula. And they actually start the discussion of this about, can we use the language necessary when talking about good works? And they, they approve this. And later on, they say this first concerning necessity or freedom in regard to good works. It is clear that the Augsburg confession and its apology often use and repeat expressions like good works are necessary, or it is necessary to do good works, which necessarily follow faith and reconciliation. And it is necessary that we sh should do and must do the good works that God commands. In the same way, the Holy Scripture itself uses words like necessary, necessity, and necessarily, and should and must to describe what we are bound to do according to God's order, command, and will, as in Romans 13, 1 Corinthians 9, Acts 5, John 15. So there's the John 15 text and John 4. And so this is, and, and that's not an exhaustive list either. Like it is actually very, very common for the scriptures to speak this way. And we are, we get our feathers ruffled a little bit, I think, as Lutherans, because we have rightly so very highly emphasized that we're saved by grace through faith alone, right? Our works do not save us. We even sing about that in the Paul Spiratus hymn, right? Good works cannot salvation gain. They merit only endless pain, right? And, and that's in, in this life, right? And especially if we're trying to rely on them. I think that's part of one of the points that he's trying to make in, in that hymn. But what the confessions give to us, which is just giving us what the scriptures give to us, is that because faith and good works are bound to each other, we should and do use the language of necessary. And this is the, that faith brings about, God through faith brings about repentance and pr repentance produces good works. And so this is one of the exhortations, right? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? If, the, if you're actually repentant about something, you do bear fruit in that. So like I, I tell my kids kind of all the time, you know, you should say that you're sorry, but you should also fix the thing so that you don't keep saying you're sorry about the same thing over and over. Right. So if you, you know, come along and you, you know, you hit your sister in the, in the head with your Lego set and you say, you're sorry. And then five minutes later you come and you hit your sister in the head with the Lego set and you say, you're sorry and do that like 10 times. Like at, by the 10th time I'm saying you're not actually sorry. Right. Because you keep doing this intentionally and there's no actual fruit in keeping with repentance there. Right. But this is just even deeper in our own lives. Right. Well, and there's even in that the hymn that you mentioned by by Spiratus in the, the ninth stanza of, the, of that same hymn that says what you says. It also says that by its fruits, true faith is known. Later in that stanza, works serve our neighbor and supply the proof that faith is living. So, again, I mean, there's there's the connection to what you're saying with the example, you know, with with your kids. If they were to to whack each other in the head that many times, that the works are evidence of what the faith is, and and that very same hymn, you know, holds those things in tension that the the works are necessary 
and and that's where we stop that sentence because that's where the scriptures stop that sentence. Works are necessary, and that reality is behind Ezekiel 15. It's certainly made quite clear in John 15, that related text. Pastor Kogo, another part of this text that we've got here today is the matter of the fire. Now, when it comes to the fire, I think in a very literal sense, Jerusalem was burned in 587 BC by the Babylonians. And I think that's certainly in mind for the prophet Ezekiel. And when the exiles see that happen, they're going to recall what Ezekiel preached. They will know that the Lord is God, and and that's going to be part of the effect. But I think you you mentioned this earlier, and we can dig into it a little bit more. When we think of fire, it also invites a a larger look at what God's Word says about not just a, a temporal judgment, but also eternal judgment. Right. Yeah, and w- and one of the things that that comes up with Ezekiel, right, is there's a couple of these these judgments that show up, like we said at the beginning, that they're kind of in the midst of all of this, and so I, I think this is part of what's going on. That even if you escape, you know, from the fire, they have come out, but the fire will still devour them, right? So they escape the first one, but not the second one, right? That's kind of this idea, but then especially in the New Testament, when Jesus is talking about you, when you've got the various judgment texts and the the last day texts, that he will very often bring in this imagery of whatever being thrown into the fire, right? That he'll separate the, the wheat from the chaff and the wheat he'll store up in the barn, but the chaff he throws out into the fire, right? So that these things are being burnt up or even... Um, I don't think we think about it this way, but we probably should consider the lilies of the field, right? The grass that is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, right? That this is this imagery of on the last day that all this is going to be burnt up, right? You get some of this in the the depictions of the 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 end of this life and the creation of the new heavens and new earth, and and kind of the fieriness of that as well. So. This is very often that the just the general idea of fire and judgment are being connected together over and over and over. And it's probably why when we depict hell, we usually depict it with flames and whatnot. We can depict it as like an outer darkness as well. But w- but whatever it is, like it's not a it's not a place we want to be, whether it's in whether it's in perpetual darkness or perpetual fire. Right. Those are not happy places to spend eternity. And I think that that's a helpful reminder to us that when we see the judgment that's described here that does fall upon the city of Jerusalem, and particularly when we connect that to the day of the Lord, which we've heard Ezekiel mention previously and is a really big theme in several of the prophets, that what the Lord does in that day in 587 BC and bringing about that judgment is intended to be a precursor, I don't know if a foretaste is the right word, of what is to come in that final day of judgment. That it's it's not just about this destruction. I mean, the, the Lord, and I think this ties in what we were saying earlier about the Lord you know, doing whatever it takes to attempt to keep us in the faith, is that if it takes the temporal destruction on the day of the Lord in 587 BC, if he can use that to spare us from the final day of the Lord, the wrath, that the judgment that comes then, then then he's going to to use the temporal judgment for that greater sake of that final judgment of sparing us then, and, and we know that that happens in Christ. Right, right, and and this like it comes back into this John fifteen text. Like this is 
what's going on there. In fact, you know, Jesus brings this this matter up of the branches being thrown into the fire twice, right at the beginning. But then he says, if anyone later on, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Right. But right before that, he says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. And this is, this is one of these big things that we, we've got to keep in mind. Being the branches connected to the vine means that our source of life is the vine. Our, our source of good works and faith and all of this is the vine. And if we're ever separating ourselves from that, then we're going to wither and die. We, we can't produce fruit away from the vine. In the same way, I mean, if you go and you take a tree and you cut off one of the limbs and you set it on the ground and you expect that limb to give you leaves, it, it's not going to work, Right. In the same way with us, if we sever ourselves from Christ, then this is what happens. But again, the Lord is always pursuing us to keep us grafted onto that vine. And in the same way that you can take a, a piece of a vine or a piece of a tree or whatever and cut it off and you can graft it back in and kind of bind it up and whatnot, and it can come alive again. Same with us, right? We're, we're never beyond the Lord's mercy. And, and I think that that's one of the, the great comforts is as long as, as like Hebrews says, as long as it is called today, there, there's still time, right? Right. Yeah, the, there's the urgency to it because of that. And I, the way, you know, again, the way John 15 ties into this text, I think is so helpful. You know, because when the branches are connected to the vine, what do they do? They bear fruit. It's that connection to the vine that is the vital part of that picture. And I, I think we can say the same thing for Ezekiel 15, which goes back toward the very beginning of our conversation where you know, you're identifying the, the primary problem for the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Certainly there's a lot of moral depravity going on. Ezekiel 16 is going to talk some about that moral depravity, but it's not just that moral depravity. It's ultimately they've cut themselves off from the Lord. They're not connected to that source of life. They're not hearing his word. They're not receiving his gifts. And it's showing in the fruit that they're, bearing, which is evil fruit rather than the good fruit that the Lord would give them when they're connected to him, the source of their life. Right. And and, and this is important. One, like you said, that the the root, uh, to use that imagery here, the, the root of the of the issue here is not the various manners of infidelity and, and whatnot that they have going on or the various other sins that come up, like you said, especially in 16, but the the thing that's actually producing all of that. And, and that is their unbelief, their hardened hearts. Uh, and that comes from not listening to and heeding the Lord's word chiefly, right? Because we remember even, even the sacraments are, are not given to us apart from the scriptures, right? So we, we have to have God's word everywhere if we're to have life. This is the literally the, the springs of living water. So, and, and Jesus brings this up again in John 15, right? If you abide in my word, then you're, you're abiding in me. And so he says, like in seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Or abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And then at the very end, like what, what's the, the product of all of this? And this is the great thing, right? So we, we read this and it's, it's very heavy on, on law and whatnot, which I mean, it's fine. It's good for us to have this every now and then. And 
but he tells us what the the product, what the what the fruit of this is, and it's not just that we're brought into eternal life. You know that that's later. It's kind of sometimes hard to rejoice in that because it's like, well, I still got to go through right now. And he says, "These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full." And this is the beautiful thing: is that when we abide in Christ through His Word, through His commandments, that we do have this great, wonderful joy that is beyond all comparison. Right? That this this peace that is given to us, not as the world gives, but as Christ gives. Right? The the as St. Paul will say, the peace that passes all understanding. Like we don't understand, we, we can't comprehend how this is working, how we can have such joy, even in the midst of various afflictions and whatnot. But being grafted onto the true vine in Christ does give us that great joy now, in addition to the, the perfect joy that is awaiting us in the resurrection. This, again, with Christ being the vine, the source of our life, I think that that brings us back to that point you brought up earlier where people say of Christ, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And, and certainly, you know, a bit of an echo, it sounds like, from what we've got here in Ezekiel 15. Is it useful for anything? What good is it? And you, you said, you know, here in Ezekiel, the wood's good for nothing. But when the question is asked of Christ, what, you know, what good can come out of Nazareth in a reversal that the Lord works or in an unexpected way that he works, actually good does come out of Nazareth. And I think that, and I'll let you, I want to hear what you have to say about this, but it certainly reminds me of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1 about the foolishness and the weakness of the cross. You know, there's a piece of wood that looks like it's good for nothing, and yet the Lord accomplishes the greatest good of all in that piece of wood. I think that's related to this question they ask about Jesus. What are your thoughts, Pastor Cotto? Yeah, so I, I think there's two very interesting and wonderful things to think about. One, what good is this little piece of ember that's sitting there? Well, it's not been completely consumed yet, right? So the good that can come out of this is that the Lord can come along. If, if this is Jerusalem, if this is Israel, the Lord can still come along and bring about faith through this little ember and replant this back into a vineyard and, and grow it. And th in fact, through this remnant that's sitting here that is preserved, we will have the messianic line continued so that we do get Jesus coming out of Nazareth, right? This little, little town. And what good can come out of that? Well, the entirety of salvation of creation can come out of that, right? Um, and it's only because the Lord does it. Like normally good things don't tend to come out of Jerusalem, right? But when the Lord is doing this work, all sorts of great stuff comes out of Jerusalem. And so I think this is the, the, the great joy in the midst of this. And, and like you said, there's this piece of wood in the cross. And what good is this piece of, you know, you're not going to take this wood and, you know, disassemble it and use it to build your house. That would be kind of like nobody wants to live in a house made out of old crucifixes and stuff. But here is this piece of wood that now is the how how we phrase it in the liturgy the the life giving tree right we we make this comparison between the 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 tree of the tree of Adam and Eve and the tree of the cross that is now a life giving tree um or that he who by a tree once overcame might likewise by a tree be overcome right so there's this echoing that's sitting in here that I think every time we get these sorts of texts we definitely want to make that connection into the, the tree of the cross, because that's the, the connection that St. Paul makes, right? He uses that language, the, the wood of the cross. 
uh, becomes this this beautiful thing. And so um, seeing my tongue, the glorious battle brings us up as well. It, it brings up this imagery of a uh, faithful cross, true sign of triumph, be for all the noblest tree, right? That, that there's this tree that is noble. There's this tree that is bearing much fruit. And what's great is the fruit that that tree bears is us as Christians and ultimately into eternity, right? And, and, and that's, that's, again, going back to John 15, that, that our joy, that we would have Christ's joy and that our joy would be full. That, that's where it is, right? It's always driving at that. Pastor Coco, we have about two and a half minutes left on the morning. As you reflect on Ezekiel 15, the connections that we've made with other places in Scripture, John 15 and other places, help us to wrap this text up. Again, point us to how this text shows us our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we didn't talk much about this, but maybe this is the place to, to finish. That the, the condemnation against Israel here is that they, they faithlessly did infidelity, and that's going to come out more again in, in 16. And so we're exhorted to remain faithful to God, to be his faithful bride as the church. And the way that we do that is uh, really wonderfully in his word, right? It's not this really convoluted, complicated sort of thing that we've got to go through a whole bunch of different steps and, you know, 10-step process to get back to being the Lord's faithful bride. The, the Lord's faithful bride is, is the church that gathers to hear his word, to rejoice in his word, to sing his word, to pray his word, um, and to receive his word bound to bread and wine at the sacrament, right? So all of these things, and, and in this we abide in Jesus, and we become, we become a part of the, the true vine, the true grapevine growing out of the midst of all of this chaos and whatnot, and keeping us alive into all eternity. And, and, and that's I think that's got to be the, the background that we see in all of this. Pastor Sean Kilgo is pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. Pastor Kilgo, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, great to be back. The Lord Jesus is the true vine. Apart from him, we can do nothing, but he has grafted us into himself. He has given us his life into death on the cross, raised for our justification, so that now connected to him, we live and we bear fruit, the fruit of good works that he has given us to do, that he has prepared in advance for us. Remain connected to that vine and live, dear Christians. Remain connected to Christ. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel or comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send up to a 60-second message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.